Welcome to Looking at Lucasfilm, the podcast with a different perspective on the world of Star Wars, Indiana Jones, and all of the other entities that George Lucas, Kathleen Kennedy, Dave Filoni, John Favreau, and the rest of the team of Lucasfilm have dreamed up over the past 40 years. I'm entertainment writer Jim Hill, and my co-host Brian Gaughan and I are recording this on Sunday, August 7th, 2022. It's been an interesting week for the world of Star Wars. For the real world, for better or for worse, starts to bleed into the film fantasy realm, and which we'll get to in the new segment of today's show. And speaking of news, the news portion of today's show is brought to you by Storybook Destinations, trusted travel partner of the Jim Hill Media Podcast Network. For a worry-free travel experience every time, please book online at storybookdestinations.com. So you've got to have been seeing the news just in the past week or so about uh, Star Wars Andor. We were supposed to get two episodes for the kickoff of the show starting on August 31st, and then Disney made the decision that eh, we're going to slide this back a bit. Now Now it's going, uh, this new limited series from Lucasfilm is going to debut on September 21st, but kicker is now we're going to get three episodes out of the 12 that were shot for season one. That's debuting on September 21st. I heard that the first three episodes are like a movie within itself. Really? So, yeah, I'm one of these, the Star Wars uh, YouTube things, mm-hmm. and they said that they've heard that those three episodes is one story arc until it gets into something else. So maybe that's one reason why they did that. As I understand it, the people who are going to be writing about and talking about Star Wars and or out ahead of the, again, now the September 21st debut of the show, they were allowed to watch four episodes, but this was back when they thought the show was dropping on August 31st. So, so again, there's a number of folks in the industry who've already seen the okay, first four episodes. Okay, that's probably who said something like that, that it was a one arc. The folks that I've talked to about this have talked about it really is a return to old Star Wars. It's In fact, there's been a lot of talk, for example, about how, as opposed to how The Mandalorian and The Book of Boba Fett and the like there, they shot with the volume and using the system that ILM came up with, Stagecraft. Oh, yeah. Is is that the one where they they look through the the iPad, and if they lift it up, they can see what the background and stuff is? That Absolutely. That's okay. Right. So, but the, here's the thing. Tony Gilroy, who who wrote and directed, he's the creator of Andor. Right. Talked about, yeah, we're old school. We didn't use stagecraft at all. It's a choice oh. that, that looks to add more grit and earthiness to a series. Well, the pr- the preview, too. I mean, if you look at it, I mean, the guns they have are like real rifles. They're not laser guns there it looks like it takes place on a world that is almost like ours before the empire gets there I, and in fact it's interesting you say that uh, Dega luna who obviously plays the title character cassian andor he said it's great everything's mechanical i mean you're interacting with real stuff and in fact fiona shaw who plays marva on Andor talked about this as well my, my character's house is built out from parts of old spaceships I used to go out and just stare at it. It was breathtaking. So 
So we get three episodes dropping on August 31st, and that's of 12 for season one. We've already, And remember that we already know we're getting a season two. Same thing with 12 episodes. And it was Drew who came back from San Diego Comic-Con with the news that provided that this show gets the ratings that Disney Plus thinks it's going to get, there's actually a five-year plan. Now, when I saw at the Star Wars celebration, they said that the end of season two was going to be Rogue One. Here's the thing. (laughs) Um, Here's the rub. That is still the plan. But again, provided that season one gets the response that it's, you know, they believe it's going to get. The notion is, did we say that the end of season two links up with, with Rogue One? I'm oh. sorry. We, we meant the end of season five. So, okay. I mean, the, the plan is always to make it to that piece of the puzzle and to click into place. But now it's just a question of how long it takes to get there. Will they all be 18 um, episodes then? 12 episodes, as I understand it. Oh, 12. Okay, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and in fact, I think Aaron and I were talking about this on Marvel to the effect of, well, wait a minute, if there are, if there are five seasons of the show and we get twelve episodes each season, that's sixty shows. And does can you really use the term limited series if something no, no, has? No. There we go. You know, but um, again, sixty shows mm-hmm. that is you know close to the magic number that people see. They say, okay, I'll binge that. But if it's two hundred shows like Midnight or Midsummer Mysteries, they look at and going, do I really need to binge 200 episodes? That's a fa- I hadn't put that together yet. See, I, I was thinking, oh, 60 episodes. That's close to the magic number 65, which used to be the right. bare minimum you needed to be syndicated on television. But they're, they're not going to syndicate it anywhere, no. probably. Oh, and it, the only the only they'll put vi- they'll put out uh, DVDs, uh, Blu-rays, and you know with special things on it, and then yeah. people will buy those, and that will bring in more revenue because there's people like me who will buy the whole set. I think you're actually on to something here, and with the notion of it's the binge number. It's yeah. you know it, it's it's new media, not old media. It's the notion of. You know, someone will stare down the barrel and it's like, ooh, isn't it 50? Is that the, the number supposedly for the... That's a, I think it was 50 or 52. It's like okay. one of those numbers would um, somebody at Netflix realize that, that people will watch something that's, you know, 50, that's... Mm-hmm. that's I can waste that much time or I can yeah, use it's that doable. much time. It's, it's you, doable. But when you get 120, mm-hmm. um, unless it's a half hour sitcom or something and you can put it on in the background you know something like uh, buffy is more than a hundred episodes isn't it mm-hmm. i i believe it is and I that believe. could that could hurt i don't know what the numbers are for buffy on a mm-hmm. streaming but buffy's all over the place too it's on terrestrial tv it's on mm-hmm. uh, cable tv so they're actually making their money that way mm-hmm. rather than streaming i guess yeah, that, but no, that's an interesting observation. And if you think about how many series, especially uh, you know for streaming, it's three episodes or three seasons and done. Right. That's the right size. That's the right shape, and you know that's what people are looking for. So, but Stranger Things mm-hmm. got five seasons. It, it did get five, and hopefully, 
Sandman was just started this week and this mm-hmm. Friday. Mm-hmm. We'll get five seasons too because that's there's five reprint novels that I go. think they're trying to to um, follow because I have one of them and it was like the first sixteen comic books and mm-hmm. that and that's how much they squeezed it into. 10 hours and cool, cool. boy did they do an amazing job it helps that the writer mm-hmm. who it's it started in his head you know neil gaiman mm-hmm. he's heavily involved and everybody wants him to be heavily involved mm-hmm. and when he started he says i can make i can clear up the mistakes that the 27 year old me <laughs> made but what's happening he's realizing mm-hmm. no the 27 year old me was right so they didn't do much changing at all. They they changed some of the format and some of the 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 structure, but they did not change the tone. And I I don't know. I think it works better than the comic book, which oh. I've read the comic book about ten times. And the reason why is mm-hmm. all the nuances mm-hmm. that you can't get in comics. The t- the lead actor Tom Sturridge, whatever his name is, mm-hmm. he does it in a side glance or a twitch or something like that and he gives you 10 pages of juxtaposition whereas you can only do so much with one panel of of comic book but we won't get into the sandman because this is not a dc actually it's a a very nice segue because you were talking about the writer neil gaiman and uh we need now to talk about not just uh, Tony Gilroy, director, creator of Andor, yes. but also the writer of Star Wars Andor. And this week, we began to see some pushback from the press because it, there was a, a comment to the effect of what's interesting about Star Wars Andor is is that it supposedly comments on Trumpian politics. Oh, jeez. <laughs> I, I didn't hear this. Yeah, and evidently what happened was that a bunch of people once again started oh it's disney and they're ruining star wars again because you know they're allowing andor to become political and it's like look oh the woke thing yeah but here's the thing brian star wars has always been political oh yeah i mean look at the the first star wars trilogy was very if you want to put in quotes woke Mm -hmm. and then the the second one Mm-hmm. which was the the first three, mm-hmm. it's very political, very political, to uh-huh. where if you study the first one, you will learn about trade and trade routes mm-hmm. and what's going on in the world by what George wrote in The, in the Phantom Menace. Well, I, but the one that always stuck out to me was The Battle of Endor. George Lucas very recently finally admitted the Battle of Endor when it's the Ewoks with their rocks and their logs and their bows and arrows taking on the might of the Empire. That's the Viet Cong going after U.S. troops. Oh, I never knew that. President Kennedy. He's in office for just a few months after being inaugurated. And the Bay of Pigs happens. And, you know, that's a fiasco. And then... We jump ahead to October of 62. Cuban Missile Crisis happens. And he comes out on the other side of that claiming victory. But, you know, given what we had to do to, in Turkey, you know, move some missiles and, you know, that sort of thing. He was smarting from it. And he wanted to make a play to show, you know, the communist powers around the world that, you know, America was not to be trifled with. And 
Um, and there, at this point, there's this ongoing conflict. I mean, from as early as 1954 on the North, uh, North Vietnamese-South Vietnamese border. And we, we had already a thousand troops there as, as advisors. Evidently, Kennedy's sitting at his desk in the Oval Office, and somebody comes in with a photograph and drops it on his table and is like, look at this. It's an American military helicopter with an arrow sticking out of the side. Oh, God. <laughs> and it was and the whole notion of, look who we're up against. Look, you know, they're trying to take down a Huey with a bow and arrow. This will be a cakewalk. Let's throw some money at it, some equipment, some troops. And, and so that's what he does. And, and by 1964, we've gone from 1,000 troops on the ground as advisors to 24,000 troops in, in Vietnam. And if we now jump ahead nine years after that, $111 billion later, and over 58,000 U.S. troops killed, 150,000 wounded, and of those, over 21,000 were permanently disabled. As soon as the Paris uh, Peace Accords are signed in January of 73, we begin to pull out, and Saigon falls in, in April of 75, and, and George Lucas is looking at this, all right? And this, you know... Right, he was at the age, I mean, he went to college to stay, one, one reason was to stay out of you know, the Vietnam War, because he went to a, a, you know, he, after his, his um, infamous accident, he mm -hmm. realizes that he's here for something else. Yep. So mm -hmm. he goes to junior college. And then from there, he finds out about USC mm -hmm. and their film school, and he goes into there. But he says, you know, it was the Vietnam War. It was, you know, what was it, 62? We lose Kennedy in November of 63, 63 but, right. but he'd already signed off on the idea of, okay, let's send more troops to, uh, to Vietnam. And of course, things really escalated under, you know, under Johnson. Under and Johnson, then, yeah. But I, he must have known that it was going to escalate because he stayed in college. And I don't know if he ever wanted to be a writer or a director or whatever, but this was just a path he went into. But it's like one of these things, like I tell Devin sometimes, he's always where he's supposed to be. Mm -hmm. If he takes a right, that's where he's supposed to be. If he wanted to take a left and it's you know more happening over there, no, that's not where you're supposed to be. And that's what, what basically happens to George. He mm -hmm. gets in a car accident, he's in the hospital, he's not dead, mm -hmm. and he realizes, I'm here for something else, and he finds the place that he's supposed to be, and all these doors open for him, and, and then he meets Coppola, who was going to UCLA. You know, they meet at a, at a festival. And Coppola sees uh, THX, and so did Spielberg. And Spielberg watched THX, and he basically says, how can I make films anymore when this guy's already got it? And that's basically George was in the right place. Mm -hmm. And George was one of these people who saw the world differently. He did, he did. But, but at the same time, what I find fascinating is that George, the storyteller, saw that moment in the, that photograph that made the rounds of the, the helicopter with the arrow sticking out of the side of it and just filed that image away. And we jump ahead to 1983 and we all go to the theater and, and we don't know we're looking at the Viet Cong battling the U.S. troops. No. We just see the, the, those lovable Ewoks with their, their logs and their vines taking out walkers. And 
But yeah, I mean, George took history and turned it into a narrative, though. If you're going to complain about what Disney is doing with Star Wars, complain about something legit, like the Lego Star Wars Summer Vacation special. Just, it came out on oh, Disney+. Oh, I haven't seen it yet. I got to watch it tonight. Yeah, it debuted on, on Friday, August 5th. And as always, the Lego things are always so much fun. They're, They're always They're so well written. And by the way, we're, uh, Weird Al Yankovic wrote an original song for this thing. Oh, cool. Is he in it too? Do they have a, a um, Lego version of him? I Yes, he's okay. on stage. Cool. <laughs> but as part of the storyline of this thing, Finn, Ray, Poe, and Rose get aboard the Halcyon. <laughs> In the same window of time, on August 16th, we're going to see the book Star Wars, The Princess and the Scoundrel comes out uh, yep. from Beth, Beth Rivers. And of course, this is the one that covers the wedding of Leia and Han right after the return of the Jedi. And and of course, they honeymoon aboard the Halcyon. And Do you think they'll ever make like a, a visual at the you know, movie or a TV show about this book is this going to become canon? This is going to become a a thing. I mean, if they would have to, they'll have to do something they don't like to do, and that's recast. But there are a lot of great actors and actresses out there that could do just as good a job as as Harrison and, and Carrie. Remember, you know, we also have a High Republic publishing effort going on right. at this time, and. Uh, there's been some discussion about the animation work that's been done for the Bad Batch. They have done some absolutely wonderful work with Clone Wars and Bad Batch. And there's been some discussion, you know, because Disney Plus is this yeah. yawing chasm that constantly needs content. And the notion is, well, what if we were to take some of these books and use them for fodder for future animated projects and you know that and and what's fascinating is you know how dc looks over at what marvel is doing and says Ooh, we, we want to do something like that which brings us to the the whole batgirl cancellation this past week or thereabouts because remember batgirl was supposedly greenlit because it was going to be dc's response to the limited series that marvel was doing. I mean, it was supposed to be just this $70 million project that would have a, a theatrical release, but was mostly intended for HBO Max. But the bigger films like Flash or, or that sort of things, those would sort of tent poles and would go out to theaters. Supposedly, the folks at Star Wars l would look at the DC original films. In fact, I think they're coming up on their, their 50th film next year. And just look at how well those are produced. And it's like, ooh, maybe the, an the animated ones? Yeah, yeah. Oh, those are amazing. They are, but it's it's the whole notion of, you know, could we maybe do some okay, Star Wars that stuff would be, like that? That would be great because if you do it in the, the animation that they did on uh, Visions, and I, I haven't seen anything yet on, on Tales of the Jedi, but it looks pretty good, or even do the same style. Did you could see Arcane at all? Because um, that was a beautiful style. Mm-hmm. And and people were calling it the best animated series ever on Netflix, and which it is. I'm not crazy about the story, but the animation was so great that I watched everyone, and I'd watch them again, and I'd watch any sequel because to see an animation that brings both CG and hand drawn together and mm -hmm. makes it into to where in almost a reality. Mm -hmm. 
they could do a great job with that. This that would true. be well, but see, I don't know what's going on with HBO. You know, the the new guy in charge from Discovery, David what Zaslin. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, he was the one that got rid of C- CNN Plus, mm-hmm. like within days. Yeah, because he didn't want anything that wasn't his. How many? executives when they take over a studio well i know i mean you know just it's the you know in a weird sort of way it's like that thing that happens in nature when a new male lion takes over a pride that you know that did they kill the cubs of the the previous but like robert Iger, he didn't i mean he he made some changes but he very nicely went in there and instead of changing everything he just brought in some new stuff and why can't you do that I mean, HBO Max is possibly, right now, the third best streaming, the second or third best streaming platform right now. You've got Netflix that I know they're having problems, but really they started the whole thing. You've got uh, Disney Plus, who is turning to, like you said, uh, a hungry monster, but they're a, they are a monster. And then you've got HBO Max, and I've heard things that he wants. To, he's he canceled mm-hmm. all of these projects that they had. They had all these animated, and um, well, not animated. They had all these TV projects yeah. that were going to be four plus, mm-hmm. and they started canceling them all. They they canceled a they canceled something that was written by Kevin Smith, mm-hmm. which to me. Bringing Kevin Smith into that folds a, a no-brainer, mm-hmm. but they didn't cancel Peacemaker Two, so at least we'll get another. But he doesn't want to go that direction. He says, mm-hmm. but the Batgirl thing, what you said with with Aaron, mm-hmm. that one reason was not oh I want to go in this different direction. That was just an excuse. But like the real reason is they wanted to get a tax write off. Yeah. But I heard the tax write off is only twenty million. Of a ninety million, they're gonna eat seventy million dollars because of this guy's ego. It, it's been fascinating to watch how long this story has lingered in the news cycle out west, and and I think I made the joke: the only person who's happy about you know this whole oh, situation yeah. is Bob Chapek <laughs> because hey, it's somebody else's turn in the barrel. I don't think Zaslin had any clue that this was how. The entertainment press was going to uh, cover this story, or more to the point, this is how the fans were going to react. You can't do that to comic book fans. All they do is sit in their rooms mm-hmm. waiting for a new thing to make their lives better. Come on. It, it's, it had Michael Keaton as Batman again. Just that for the price of admission. Mm-hmm. I've been listening to Downloaded. The Rise and Fall of Harry Knowles. It's uh, Joe Scott has. I want to say there are eight episodes. Oh, now. it's a it's a podcast. It's a podcast. Okay, and I it, find it, that. it's it's the history of Anakul News, and w- what they talk about is one of the things that really put Anakul News on the map was Batman and Robin. The sequel to Batman Forever, only this time instead of Batman being played by Michael Keaton or Val Kimmer, it was George Clooney. And nipples on the bat suit. There we go. And it was just, (laughs) and and Harry took it upon himself 
to just go after this movie. And, and it was one of these things where when it opened, Warner Brothers noticed that it did significantly less business than Batman Forever. And that was largely because the fan community had been turned against this movie prior to release. So the very thing you're talking about here, the notion that you need these people to actually come out to support these films, in addition to, of course... The general moviegoer. That basically happened with Star Wars, if you think about it, the first Star Wars. Mm -hmm. They went to the conventions, they got all the science fiction people, they got all the fantasy people to wait in line to see this movie. Mm -hmm. And in doing so, the camera crews of the news stations went out and filmed this, and that was one reason why that weekend was huge, because Mm -hmm. people saw this on their TV screen and said, wait a minute, Am I missing out? And they went all they all went there. But so you're one hundred percent right when you mm-hmm. say that you cannot discount these fans. You need them in your corner. But at the same time, to be fair to to Zaslov, you know, and again being in charge of, of you know Warner Brothers Discovery and you are in charge of a major media corporation and you are responsible to your shareholders and the members of your board. And, you know, his argument was like, we want DC to make important movies. We want these things to be events. And the other thing I found kind of amusing is I forget who did this online, but it was like 1993, Warner Brothers announces that they have a 10-year plan for DC. Then in 2003, they announced they have a 10-year plan for for DC. And then 2013, (laughs) we've got a 10-year plan. The more things change, the more they stay the same. And Which, by the way, brings me to the the next bit of Star Wars-related news, because it's like you would think just this past weekend, Thor, Love and Thunder, passed Thor Ragnarok at the domestic box office. Wow. So, big hit. And so you think, uh, Taika Watiti, with that news, it would be clear sailing in regards to his Star Wars movie, which, remember, is supposed to be the first to not link up with the Skywalker saga. That, you know, it's supposed to be standalone, and he's, he's looking to tell a story that isn't necessarily as heavily invested in the Force or the previous existing characters. And just this past week, news has leaked out that this project evidently now is in trouble. That suddenly Lucasfilm, I guess, looked at the first treatment for it. And it's like, yeah, I don't know as we want to actually climb out on that branch. And if you look at how well Mandalorian, Book of Boba Fett, or for that matter, you know, we've got uh, Star Wars Andor starting September 21st and how all of these link into pre-existing projects. And I'm just getting the sense that Taika may be bringing something to the buffet that maybe Kathleen Kennedy and the folks at Lucasfilm are like, well, I, I don't know. So we, we want to necessarily be totally separate from the Skywalker saga. Do you think he's bringing a, a different type of humor too? I mean, that's what oh, he does. It's, it's Taika Waititi, of course. He's you know, and if, but again, remember that when Chris Miller and Phil Lord were working on Solo, a Star Wars story, the story I've always heard is that they would shoot a lot of different takes, you know, with different lines and different gags and, and that sort of thing. And then it, what they wanted to do was find the movie in the editing room. 
Right. Evidently, you know, that's the thing. Kathleen is seeing the rushes come back, and it's like, what are you guys doing? This is all over the map. And but see, that's what George did, too. When George did American Graffiti, yep. when George did Star Wars, he had his secret weapon, which was a woman named Marsha Lucas, mm-hmm. and he he found the film in... Or, and she helped, and so did Paul Hirsch. They found the movie mm-hmm. in what they had. He filmed things. He knew what he wanted to film, mm-hmm. and he got it done. And when they got there, you know, they had an English editor, but he made it, uh, no, I'm, yeah, he made it something different. But mm-hmm. then they got Marsha in there, and she knew what George was thinking. Uh, Icons Unearthed, Star Wars, which yep. has been running on Vice. How many episodes have you seen now? There's only four for the first season. Okay. And they kind of, right. um, they leave, it's not a spoiler, but it's kind of a spoiler. They mm-hmm. leave it open that says, that mm-hmm. they basically say, George was done with Star Wars. Mm-hmm. Or was he? <laughs> and then, so I think there'll be a, a second season. Do we, you want to cool. talk about this now? Or do you want to wait? Yes, till, no, I'd love to. Because again, you know, no, 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 please. Okay. Well, I saw them both. I saw Light and Magic, which is six episodes, and that's on Disney Plus. And that's yep. on Disney Plus. And mm. I saw Icons on Earth, and it's Star Wars uh, Part One, A New Hope Part One, Part Two, mm-hmm. uh, Empire, and Return of the Jedi. Now, the thing about these are some weirdness is going on because Mm -hmm. they were both released at the same time. Mm -hmm. And there's a reason why Unearth, Icons Unearth, is showing on a channel called Vice. Mm -hmm. Because it basically shows the dark side of what was going on and the things that you... And while I was watching Light and Magic, which I watched Mm -hmm. first... I would not have thought that it was like the Disney sanitized version of what Mm -hmm. was going on. Mm -hmm. Basically, it focused more on light and magic than the movies, but the Mm -hmm. movies were the big part of it. And of course, George was the big part of it. And also a person that they did not mention except a couple times and no interviews was Marsha Lucas, Mm -hmm. who he, who he met, um, in film school and and they she worked on every film that he's worked on um mm-hmm. editing wise so light and magic was written and directed well, how much do you write on a, a on a um documentary by lawrence kasdan who mm-hmm. was the screenwriter of oh um, raiders uh you know empire well i mean he he came in behind leah bracket on that, right, right? He, yeah yeah empire and uh well she died Mm-hmm. Two days after she turned in the first draft. Wow. So then they brought in Kasdan, because Kasdan, I guess, already did Raiders of the Lost Ark. Mm-hmm. So they brought in Kasdan, and then Kasdan helped George write the last one, too, mm-hmm. Return of the Jedi. So mm-hmm. when you have a writer, mm-hmm. and he's a director also, making mm-hmm. a documentary... Mm-hmm. Even if you if you have a musical documentary like by Martin Scorsese or anything else, they do something different than most documentary directors do, and that they put in a story. Mm-hmm. They'll show the concert, then they'll show a build up to the concert. They'll show some backstage stuff, mm-hmm. and then you get 
this whole story when you're seeing not just not just what happened, but you're getting a story, and that's what Kazan does with White Magic. And there's parts you're laughing, there's parts of drama, there's parts of tragedy, but they don't get too much into it. One thing that, or too much into the tragedy, whereas icons, mm-hmm. when George got off, when he stopped filming and, mm-hmm. and went to ILM to start mm-hmm. working on it, he started getting ill. A matter of fact, I think on the way back from filming, he thought he was having a heart attack. Mm-hmm. And they mentioned that in Light and Magic. Mm-hmm. But with icons, mm-hmm. he was he was worse off than they they kind of implied in Light and Magic. Mm-hmm. And he you know, he was really sick and and the, and they he thought he was dying. Mm-hmm. So after recovering and he goes in there whereas Light and Magic kind of implied that he and Dystra had a different style. Mm-hmm. Icons really get get into it, mm-hmm. and they really get into the whole part that Marsha was a big part. Mm-hmm. Marsha was basically his Jiminy Cricket, mm-hmm. where George didn't know. You know, he was focused. He was quiet. He didn't know what he wanted. Sometimes Marsha was there, knowing exactly what he wanted. Marsha helped edit all his films. Marsha helped um, put up Skywalker Ranch. Marsha was always backing George. But when they had they adopted a child, George wasn't around for when they were doing Jedi because even though they picked a director to do it, he was still there at every every day because the producer Howard. Kazjian, yeah, he basically told him, he goes, you're going to need to be here because this guy really doesn't know Mm -hmm. how to handle this kind of thing. And that's what happened. He went there and uh, George was there all the time and, you know, George gets stressed because Mm -hmm. he doesn't, I can't wait to see what they start showing about. uh, Then in the light and magic, I Mm -hmm. think we get a little bit into the prequels, Mm -hmm. but not much because by that time, Light and Magic went from a practical Mm -hmm. or industrial Light Magic went Mm -hmm. from a practical place where they Mm -hmm. were doing explosions and models and the whole thing to a digital. And, and that was kind of weird too, when you were watching that and how it was, was changing and how the people, you know, like Richard Edlin and Phil Tippett and how they were working on the basic practical stuff. Mm-hmm. And then he put together, of course, what became Pixar, yep. but then Pixar wanted to do animation so they had another CG company, and this is all in light and magic. And this is it's it's all, it's 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 like a soap opera. It's quite the saga. And remember, wasn't one of the reasons that Pixar got spun off uh, the Pixar unit was George had to come up with a certain amount of cash because he and Marshall were getting divorced at that point. And, yeah, and, yeah, and he had to give her. Yeah, it needed to be a, a bit more liquid. So yeah, they hinted that they don't get into that that was in the pixar story i think you you got 
you know, and and basically he wanted a lot more from Jobs, and Jobs says, "No, I'm giving you ten million. <laughs> there you go. And and that's what what happened. But still, it wasn't in his. I mean, they did the edit droid, which turned into Avid. Yep. They did um, what Photoshop was it? Photoshop there is as well. well yeah. Well, there mm-hmm. was okay. Edit Droid was the first one to do anything. Mm-hmm. Then there was Avid and another thing called Lightworks. Mm-hmm. And I worked at Lightworks. Mm-hmm. And Lightworks was on the Windows platform. Mm-hmm. So you could do things with it that you couldn't on Apple because Apple was very, you have to do it this way, where Microsoft or DOS, you could build your own platform. You could build your own um, operating system, and that's what they did. Mm-hmm. And the first film ever to be edited on a Lightworks to win Academy Award was Braveheart. And they had all this film, mm-hmm. and the editor, and, and Phil Hirsch, mm-hmm. one of his first things he worked, before he worked on Abbott, he worked on uh, Lightworks. And I was I worked with the woman who, she was the, well, she was the vice president. Mm-hmm. And we would think there, and, and at the time, I knew a lot of editors or who they were and what they worked on. And it was sold as an editor, mm-hmm. but it was really a computer. And it scared a lot of people, especially the editors. I actually went to high school with this guy. He was a good friend of mine, Michael Sale. He's done a lot of the uh, Dwayne Johnson comedies. I want to say Central Intelligence. Okay. Was his, he was one of the editors on this. But, but Mike goes to school at Emerson in Boston. He befriends Rodney Dangerfield's daughter, who's going to school there as well. Ends up going out to L.A. for a summer. Winds up uh, working with Imagination. I think they were working on their first television project at that point. Michael arrives out in L.A. at the time where Avid first shows up. And all of the old school editors, the guys who physically worked with film and pieces of tape putting together movies, wanted nothing to do with it. So it was like, you know, I don't want to let the kid work with the Avid machine. Yeah. Because the old guys didn't want to touch the new technology. This becomes something that Mike works with. And in fact, he shows Ron Howard as they're working on the pilot. You know, they're working on the Avid system. And, and Ron Howard immediately falls in love, not only with the system, but with, with Michael and sort of takes him under his arm. Well, that, yeah, that's what happened with the Avid. The thing about the Lightworks, though, it was set mm-hmm. up like the chem. Mm-hmm. So we got the old guys. Mm-hmm. We got the old guys who could work with it. Yeah. But we still would have to, like they did with Michael... Um, we still would have to put the right computer guy yeah. with the right editor. Mm-hmm. And so that was part of my job. I would mm-hmm. go, well, we're working with Paul Hirsch. He d- mm-hmm. he worked with um, Brian De Palma. He did this, yeah. this, this. Mm-hmm. I think that this person would be the best person for him. Or mm-hmm. we're working with, I can't think of the editors right now, but the guy who did Braveheart. We mm-hmm. think that this, because all it was, I mean, it was so funny. They had a, a, a brick mm-hmm. of, it, it was a... Uh, memory mm-hmm. it was a brick and it was nine gigs mm-hmm. and we were so happy that we got a nine gig thing but it weighed a ton yep. but you you pulled it out you pulled it in they yep. brought it to they could um put the the film right from the negative right on to video mm-hmm. so they didn't have to do a print and then when they 
cut, then they would get a work print, mm -hmm. and then you wouldn't have all these cuts in it because mm -hmm. they would cut it the exact way. Well, mm -hmm. that's what that's what non-digital, but it all came mm -hmm. from George, mm -hmm. and I think he sold the 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 edit droid too for the same reason. He needed cash. But in both of the shows, well, uh, at least in Icons, you kind of get the idea that they both realize what a mistake they made. Mm, because I even know. after the divorce, mm -hmm. he brought her back to supervise, supervise the editing for Return of the Jedi. But again, it all comes down to money. And, and tell you what, folks, after this commercial break, we're going to talk about... <laughs> what caused Empire to really overrun its budget? I deliberately selected this story because it's been brutally hot here in New England and in California. <laughs> but nothing, nothing compared to what George uh, and, you know, the team that shot the original New Hope dealt with back in 74. Five or seventy six when they were they were in North Africa shooting in Tunisia. Yes, but yeah, brutal, brutal heat and lots of sand and and that sort of thing. But people loved the stuff that was shot in Tunisia for the Uncle Owen and Aparu's house. And but you know why they originally went to Tunisia? Uh, inform what? Okay, well, first of all, and th this shows it in um, in icons. There is actually a mm -hmm. town mm -hmm. in Tunisia called Tantooine. No, really? Yes, it's spelled differently, but it's mm -hmm. pronounced the same. Wow. But they went there because mm -hmm. they have no rain during the mm -hmm. year. Mm -hmm. Until this one time. I love that you said that because this is, you know, I, I, you know so again, it's now time to do the Star Wars sequel. And we want to do something different from what we did on Tantooine. You know, again, we went to the, the desert in North Africa. Okay, we're going to bury the needle in the exact opposite direction. We're going to go to Finsk, Norway, to the, I'm going to mangle this name, but the Hargen Jarigan Jolkin <laughs> Glacier. And this is where they did the Ice Planet Hoth footage. And the notion is, hey, we, we took you to the deserts, you know, for Tentoe, we're going to take you to Hoth. And it, but again, we're going to get that gritty realism that you only get from shooting in a real place. So they fly the crew to Norway in March of 79. And again, they already know we're only going to do a couple of weeks here and they're going to go to Dale Street and start shooting on the sound stages there. And they go there because... They don't have storms there. They don't have, they just have snow. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's it, exactly. All right, so so of course, just like on the Tunisian set where they, they don't get rain, but they, you know, while they're there, they get rain. They go to the place in Norway because they never get storms. They get the area's worst snowstorm in half a century. 40 mile an hour winds, uh, temperatures that drop down to 32 degrees mm. below zero. But the entire crew is trapped in the hotel. And in fact, poor Carrie Fisher. The story that Mark Campbell tells is that Carrie never got to go to Tunisia. So she was determined, okay, we're making another Star Wars movie. I want to go to Norway because, you know, the, in fact, one of the reasons was that Carrie was jealous of, of Mark because he actually got the crew jacket because he got... <laughs> gone to Tunisia. So it's like, I'm going to set. I'm going to be there for the, uh, you know, so I get a crew jacket. But again, so much snow falls. She's trapped there along with them. 
but they still had to film. You know, they still had to, you know, it's like, we're burning money here, guys. In fact, that's the thing. By the time Empire was done, the budget had ballooned to $22 million, which given, what, the first Star Wars cost seven? I mean, that was really, really scary, especially to George, because this was the one he was paying for with his own money, right? Yeah, the second one, he he got a loan from Bank of America. Mm-hmm. Then Bank of America wanted to pull it in. Yeah. And then he had to find another bank, Bank of Boston, mm-hmm. to pay off the Bank of America. But then he was fine. and But this one was all his own money. Yeah, and so it, it was terrifying to get be getting a phone call, long-distance international phone calls from Norway to the effect of, we can't make it to the set. And so, you know, well, you have to shoot something. So they were opening the door of the hotel and mushing out into the snow just out beyond the hotel and shooting footage there, whatever they could. Well, that one shot of when he falls off his Tanton and it's <laughs> Luke walking across... Mm-hmm. The that was shot from the hotel, <laughs> <laughs> and that just kills me. I you know just but it, again anything to keep the project moving forward. But they wind up going weeks behind schedule. I want to say they don't get done till June or thereabouts, and even then, because they have to move people to L Street to start shooting the interiors. But this whole notion of we're dying here, that they went from burning up in Tunisia to freezing in Norway. But arguably, it does pay off. There is that sense, that grittiness to those movies. In fact, to sort of bring things full circle here, that's what fascinates me about Star Wars and and or that the folks who have seen, again, those first four episodes that have been embargoed, just talk about it looks so much like old school Star Wars, that used future that people are clearly standing in, that, that they're interacting with. And, you know, you got to wonder going forward here, given that there clearly now are two schools of thought between stagecraft and volume versus what Tony Gilroy is doing with Star Wars Andor. What happens here now? What have you been hearing about Star Wars Skeleton Crew? Because that's shooting now, right? Yeah, the, it started shooting. We don't have much casting on it except for Jude Law, and we don't mm-hmm. and much stuff isn't coming out of it at all. Mm-hmm. But I heard that their budget mm-hmm. is $120 million. Mm-hmm. Now, that sounds like a lot. Mm-hmm. But it sounds like two or three small um, medium budget movies. But if you think about it, Netflix just did The Sandman, mm-hmm. and each episode mm-hmm. cost fifteen million dollars. Oh, so that's a hundred and fifty million dollars. Mm-hmm. But I can almost guarantee you they're going to make that back in subscribers. The hundred subscribers or a hundred million subscribers they lost, mm-hmm. a lot of them are going to come back for this. I mean, they did for Stranger Things, mm-hmm. for the Umbrella Academy. Mm-hmm. So they're they're going to come back for this because this is going to be the next big cultural thing because mm-hmm. it's going to hit a lot of dip, you know it's it's remember the goth culture of the eighties. With Nightmare Before Christmas brought the go- the goth culture into the pop culture, where this is going to do, and the comic book mm-hmm. of Sandman did the same thing, and this movie is going to do the same thing. People are going to. I can't wait to go to Comic Con next year because the cosplay 
is oh. going to be outstanding. It already is great, but you know you see a lot of death and a, and a lot of uh, dream, but you don't see the other ones. And and to see desire and to see destruction and and that that's going to be fun to to see. But the destruction's not until next season. Mm-hmm. But so it doesn't sound like I'm I'm betting Endor had the same budget, but we just we haven't heard it. So some I don't know why they leaked Skeleton Crew, and maybe they did it because it's no characters we've ever heard before. Okay, but re- in regard to the budget info leaking, remember we have that info because of the California state tax credit thing. That They're filming they, it in, te- in California, that's right. That's the only reason that info leaked out. And, and I love that you, you just shared that story about, this is George Lucas, the guy who just made the original Star Wars. And you think that every bank in the planet would be lining up. Oh, yeah. I want in on that. But no, I mean, yeah, the, the fact that Bank of America, when they saw, you know, that I guess it was originally budgeted for 22 million and then you know that by the time they the cost overruns and everything else it got closer to 30 and that was the moment where bank of america was suddenly saying you know it went from hey we're in business with george lucas that smart young kid who made star wars to oh my god this guy who can't control the cost of his movie and we want out and so he has to go hat in hand to bank of boston and get that loan i mean look the story ends happily you know empire was sort of ends happily wait till you see icons on earth because yes they finished the film but he loses his friendship and trust of, um, oh gosh, who's his producer on the first one? Oh, I know. No, not, I, oh, dang. The guy uh, with the, the Quaker beard. Yes. Why am I? It's so interesting because uh, one, one last story here, because that gentleman goes off and uh, he winds up producing Return to Oz for Disney. Right. In fact, he's the one who puts Walter Murch. Oh, Gary Kurtz. Gary, Gary Kurtz. Kurtz. Yeah, Gary okay. Kurtz. But they were really good friends. And Gary, you know, but Gary, when he was working with Irving Kirshner, Irving Kirshner is a real director. Yeah. Irving Kirshner knows what he wants. Mm-hmm. And and because of what was going on, you know, yeah. the budget, um, Harold um, Kajan, mm-hmm. he yeah. made this uh, budget that was very tight. Well, that's not the way Irving was working. And the reason the movie works is because of Irving Kirshner. Mm. And that's one thing that you'll see in in, um, Icons on Earth, too. That's one thing that bothers George, too. But Gary didn't, uh, he just seemed really passive aggressive. And that's why the budget went up. Yes, that their friendship was severely strained by what happened on the set of Empire. But if if we now jump ahead to this would have been... 83, 84, when Return to Oz is being shot over in London. And this is Walter Murch, uh, you know, the guy who edited The Conversation. You know, they worked with the big filmmakers of, of that age, one of the brilliant editors, but it's the first time he's directed. And because of the child acting laws in London, Afragio Burke, the, the, the young lady who played Dorothy, could only be on set for a couple of hours a day. And so the film falls behind schedule very quickly. And Disney isn't happy with what they're seeing. And so the word comes down to fire Walter Murch. 
that you know we're going to fire Walter Murray. Right. That's, shut the, down. that's yeah. the first thing everybody thinks about. Fire the director. Okay. So, but here's the thing. Gary Kurtz hears that this is going to happen. Again, remember, he's the producer of Return to Oz. So he calls George Lucas. He calls Francis Ford Coppola. And suddenly Disney is hearing, you know, that they're, they're getting ready to send somebody to the set to fire Walter Murch. And it's like, George Lucas is on the set of Return to Oz. And it's like, what? And he's like, he's there standing by Walter Murch's elbow and talking with him about how to, to move things along. And then it's like, oh, no, Ford, Francis Ford Coppola is on the set <laughs> of Return to Oz. And it's one of these things where you have these filmmakers of huge movies who are suddenly standing behind your director. And it's like, you want to be the one who walks under the set at that moment in front of George Lucas and Francis Ford Coppola and fire Walter Murch? And they stayed there on set long enough and gave him some practical advice. Get a directive. Okay, this is how you do a scene. This is how you move quickly. This is how you handle the rehearsal process with your child who can't be on set very long. And they stayed there long enough for, for Walter to find his footing and more to the point to catch up. And George only did that because Gary called him and he got on a plane and yeah. flew to London as a favor just to stand there between Walter and the exec from Disney who was going to come over and fire him. And it's just, you know, so I, again, I, I love that story and I love that, you know, even though they had that, that break after what happened with Empire, that yeah, Lucas that was still yeah. loyal enough to do that so well not um, only that but you know walter Murch wrote uh the screenplay or co-wrote the screen screenplay for thx 1138 there we go so we they, go. they they were all these you know people together and if they had their way nobody would be working for hollywood so nobody would be fired from anything but you know gary kurtz he went on to do amazing things mm -hmm. and i bet he learned a lot from george but when you get someone like George, who keeps it all inside his head, yeah. you you have to like like Marsha, you have to be able to read his mind, you know. And he once said he would never sell mm -hmm. his company because it mm -hmm. was his company and he built it from nothing, mm -hmm. and he made it into the biggest one of the biggest movie studios mm -hmm. ever. But he did sell it. He didn't sell it for the money because the the four billion dollars is nothing mm -hmm. for what Disney got for that, mm -hmm. and supposedly he gave a lot of it away to charity. He did, and he just did it because he knew that he wouldn't be able to continue to make the kind of movies that Hollywood now makes. If we jump back to 1989, August of 89, one of the reasons that Jim Henson agreed to you know the the first attempt for Disney to buy the Muppets, is that he wanted his characters to live on. And face it, when you look at Disney, I mean, think about it, Mickey Mouse debuted November 1928. And and still, I mean, you know, the Mickey today is still a character, world-renowned, and is still making those wonderful new shorts for Disney Channel and Disney+. Plus. Disney has a gift for keeping things evergreen. And that was the thing. Jim had seen other characters from his childhood, characters that he loved, just fall by the wayside because of mismanagement. They didn't have a company that understood what... I mean, the, how the, many Bugs, but Bugs Bunny could have been the, the Mickey Mouse of the day, too? I mean, they both... There was an, enough room for both of them. There but was. Disney just knew how mm -hmm. to do... He mm -hmm. knew how to take 
what he did with one character mm-hmm. and put it into something else like he did with Snow White and then go on to, to other stuff. And supposedly that was one of the issues that Lucas was looking at, you know, to the effect yeah. of, look, if I hand this to Disney, I know it lives forever. And let's be honest that one of the reasons that it would live forever is Disney would be looking for brand new ways to make money off of it. And Disney is the one to do it. I mean, some people buy, like like the whole... It's a Casper the Friendly Ghost. Mm-hmm. When I, I forget who it was who bought Harvey, mm-hmm. but they did nothing with it. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. and there's all that IP. Yeah. But Disney knows what to do with it. They buy something. Okay, maybe it's a little bit cynical, but they beat the hell out of it to make sure. And I think they do it well because people come to their door to see things. Disney eventually does buy the Muppets in 2003, but let's remember that Michael Eisner goes out the door in 2005 and he's the Muppet fan. And then Disney buys Pixar, Disney buys Marvel, Disney buys Star Wars. And Muppets get shoved down to the bottom of the pile. I mean, don't get me wrong. We have that, that, in fact, I I think they just had a, uh, a photograph from the end of production of that Dr. Teeth and the Electric Mayhem limited series that's being shot for for Disney Plus. So the the Muppets are being used and there was that Halloween special back then, but I don't know if Jim would be all that happy with how Disney's been treating the Muppets because they have Star Wars and Marvel and Pixar. And and also the Muppets, they're they're difficult to to do things with. Was it Len who said they should just Put the Muppets in movies that make fun of their movies or stuff like that. Was it? Was that who said it? Yeah, that he 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 was suggesting that they should have the Muppets do parodies of, of Mermaid and, and Beast. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that could be fun. That could that could be, be a fun. that could fill a big hole on Disney Plus, and they can they can do all sorts of things so. with that. And I think that's because even from the beginning, hmm. the Muppets, Muppets Tonight, it was all about parody. It was basically Saturday Night Live for kids. Yeah, and and don't forget that. But the interesting interesting point you make there is remember that on the very first season of Saturday Night Live, the the Muppets were part of that show. Right, the creepy Muppets. The creepy Muppets, (laughs) which John Belushi hated. And, you know, they were gone by season two, so... All right, folks, we're talking in circles at this point. So I think Brian and I are talking because it's too damn hot. All right. Yeah, so we're, it is we're, too damn hot. All right. So we're going to go, go get a beverage. But in the meantime, we'll be back with another show in, in two weeks' time. But uh, until then, uh, Brian, where can folks find you? Well, you can find me on Twitter at Geek with Children, And children is spelled C-H-I-L-D-R-N. I ran out of letters and um and i'm there and then you can find me in other places but those are the that's the best place to to find me because the other places are filled with pictures of my family and who wants that oh you you mean you're you're, you're 20 year old or 21 21 year old old, he's 21 today i can't believe that i'm a father of course i'm a 62 year old father Uh, of a 21 year old but uh, yeah and my daughter's 18 i mean empty nest it's going to happen. So I'll be doing, a, a, I think I'm going to watch and get my wife to watch all the Star Wars films with me. There we go. That'll kill. That will kill everything. There we go. All right. Uh, well, our side is free. And if you're looking for us, uh, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram as Jim Hill Media. And on Facebook is Jim Hill Media News. 
uh, if you could do Brian in a favor, you could head over to Apple Podcasts and rate and recommend uh, the show. Likewise, if you really, really like what you hear here, uh, you can head over to Bandcamp and subscribe. And thanks for listening. We'll be back soon.